Content warning. Racism, slavery, genetic engineering, kidnapping, and hippie bashing. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Once upon a time, there was a man, orphaned in a wild place, adopted by the primate inhabitants, and raised as an animal. When his own kind came for him, he found them to be cruel and capricious. He became a wandering adventurer, forever apart from his own kind, trapped between worlds. Once upon a time, there was a warrior, a barbarian, who came amongst the ancient decaying civilizations as a reaver and an outsider, his savage vitality elevating him above those around him, his only protection from the eldritch horrors unleashed by the decadent seekers of power. Once upon a time there was a man who went to Mars, finding adventure and romance among the ancient warrior civilizations who battled over the dead planet. There are many swashbuckling pulp heroes to whom one of these descriptions might apply, but only one we know that fits all three. Eric John Stark, also known as the Dark Man, Nchaka, the man without a tribe, the creature of an hour, created by Lee Brackett in 1949 for Planet Stories. Hi, I'm Philip Rice. With me as always is Adam Prosser, and today we're taking a look at one of the more obscure sword and planet heroes, but one that's interesting for a number of reasons. Hello, Philip. How Hello. are you? <laughs> I'm all right. So yes, um, we're uh, we're looking at uh, this. Turns out this is going to be our second last uh, show of the season, and this turns out to be a pretty good one to look at, sort of as we're wrapping up the first season, because this uh, encapsulates a lot of different pulp yeah. subgenres and uh, and ideas. Yeah, one of our first ones was on the Call Stories by Robert E. Howard, uh, and of course we did Barsoom. Uh, we haven't done Tarzan yet, but, you know, everybody knows what Tarzan is. Well, well, of course, we did the much more famous one, which was Saturn and Ferrandi. Of course. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, but yes, it's, it's uh, in many ways, this is kind of following all the, tr mashing all the tropes together, uh, this series. Um, but one of the things that's uh, specific about it, that's kind of unique, is that it was written by Lee Brackett, uh, who was uh, one of the rare female pulp writers. Although pro pro possibly less rare in the post World War II era, um, but she is of course known to nerds as the writer of *The Empire Strikes Back*, the original draft. Right. The um, and I looked into it. I I haven't. The draft has been released apparently. Yeah. Um, but I I, I didn't read it. But uh, no, it was um, quite different from what yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, let's see. It says here uh, in the in her draft uh, there was a stronger love triangle between Luke, Leia, and Han. 
uh, which, of course... Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Yoda was named Minch. Right. Um, Luke had a hidden sister named Nelith. Oh. Uh, Lando Calrissian was named... Uh, one second. Uh, Lando Kadar. Not that mm-hmm. big dip- And he was a clone in this version, too. Oh, right? I, I didn't see that, but yeah, uh, possibly. That's my, my understanding is that she tried to... Act, she was uh, the first one to jump on the Clone Wars line yeah. from the first one. Oh, okay. To, I try see. to make it a bigger thing. Yeah. Uh, let's see. And Anakin and Darth Vader were still different people. Uh, but uh, apparently Lucas didn't really like the script, but uh, um, they kept her n- name on it because of uh, she, she had just died. Right. Um, yeah, she when, died after she turned in the first Yeah, uh, though other people say that it is actually quite similar in terms of plot beats. Like there's the asteroid chase and uh, something similar to Hoth happens at the beginning. So right. it, it depends, you know. Story specifics are different, but there are a lot of lot in common, like yeah. the structure of the thing. Apparently, yeah, she worked out. Yeah, she yeah, the structure is basically. It sounds like that's what was there. I know that, and that's they, what first drafts typically right. are, anyway. Yeah, and she introduced the idea that um, uh, you know, they were going to have to. In this case, it was literally the rebellion needs to find someone who's going to be important to helping them win the rebellion, and that turned out, that eventually a few drafts later turned into Lando. But in the finished movie, they just kind of stumble into him. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but we're not here to talk about Star Wars. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. Lucas was a big admirer of hers and a fan of hers, and so um, he uh, tracked yeah. her down. And of course, uh, she he was actually uh, wrote the the uh, uh, forwards to uh, a couple of the books that uh, in this series. Though I haven't read them because they weren't in my editions, but right, yeah. Well, of course that was, the, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there was a big boost of her uh, for her work uh, right after uh, Star Wars came out, both because Star Wars had made a reinvigorated interest in Sword and Planet type of stories, and also because she was literally involved in the but, Empire Strikes uh, Back. Yeah, and also she she was a uh, screenwriter, and she had actually left left uh, science fiction for quite a while to focus on that because it was more lucrative. Uh, she wrote this script to The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart, mm-hmm. which I've seen, but it's been a while. I should have rewatched that. But right, um, uh, with William Faulkner. Yeah, she and Wolf Faulkner were the co-writers of. The yeah, film apparently film. she had written a uh, 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 a detective story, and that was. They, yes. they picked her up because of that. Yes, it was, uh, it, uh, the, the quote I read was that uh, Howard Hawks, who's directed The Big Sleep, literally said, get me this guy bracket, <laughs> because they assumed she was a man, because she was writing all this hard-boiled fiction, basically. Yeah. And um, and then uh, she also, later there, in the 70s, there was a Robert Altman uh, adaptation of a different Raymond Chandler book. The uh, Long Goodbye? Yeah, The Long Goodbye. And um, she also wrote the screenplay for that yeah. one. So she was basically the go-to for Chandler adaptations <laughs> in Hollywood. Um, and then she uh, also wrote a bunch of westerns, John Wayne westerns, uh, including Rio Bravo and Hatari, uh, and those were also Howard Hawks directed. So she worked with Howard Hawks a lot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so she was she wrote uh, hard boiled detective stories. She did science fiction for a while in the late forties, early fifties. She was in Hollywood for a while in the fifties and early sixties. She, I don't think she was doing much. And then she did seems to have come back to uh, sci-fi in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, um, yeah. Which the, is when... The Eric John Stark stories start again. So there's right. a long gap between them. And I think that... Mu- I, if I had to guess, I think that might have been because of the popularity of Dune uh, in the late 60s. Mm-hmm. Might have, And just fantasy in general and that kind of stuff was starting to burgeon in the late 60s and 70s. So I think she saw a market there. So in between when she was writing anything, it was more uh, pulp and Hollywood screenplays, which mm-hmm. is not so bad. Uh, so we should get to the stories themselves. Right. Um, as we said in the, the introduction, uh, or hinted at, uh, Eric John Stark is a uh, human being. Um, no, yeah, an Earth 
Earth descendant man. Earth man because uh, there are humans on every planet apparently mm-hmm. um, in, in this in this universe. Um, but uh, uh, he was raised on Merc. He was born and raised on Mercury. He was the son of uh, uh, some people who worked in the mine or in the there was mining interest on Mercury. But uh, they were killed, and he was raised by a tribe of. Uh, what what's the phrase subhuman uh yeah. half human aborigines yeah which okay. uh, is a little uh there's some problematic stuff but it's not as racist as some of these other stories mm-hmm. often get and we'll get to race issues in this uh, later but um uh so he was raised uh as a savage and on a really un- inhospitable world it's described as the twilight belt on mercury uh it's breathable atmosphere but it's barely livable Mm -hmm. like it gets really hot in the day really cold at night and there's monsters rock lizards and other creatures um so he and uh at the age of 14 he's found by a uh uh guy working at the government uh no no no. no, he's found by the miners Uh, oh yeah sorry that's that's right sorry uh he's found by miners who sort of keep him in a cage as a curiosity Mm -hmm. uh and then he's found by they they kill off the the tribe yeah right so that's it's uh, he has his first exposure to humanity is uh very negative basically yeah um and uh uh so simon ashton who's a uh he works uh, with the government and sort of a liaison between the miners and the abos as, as they're called um, and, uh, Simon Ashton takes him in, uh, f- finds out his history. His name is, uh, Eric John Stark. Uh, he had been named by the tribe, uh, Unchaka, which means man without a tribe. Um, and, uh, uh, Simon Ashton sort of brought him up and became his foster father and taught him civilization. Uh, a interesting thing about, uh, Eric John Stark, and I guess, this will uh, segue off into more stuff about race, but uh, he's described as dark-skinned. Mm-hmm. Um, it repeatedly says that his skin is almost as dark as his black hair, but he's not necessarily a person of color because that is a really bad tan. Right. He's also described as having light-colored eyes. Right. Uh, so it's it's ambiguous. Yeah, and I, you have I some thoughts t- on that. Yeah, I, I'll, we'll talk about that later. But for oh, now, okay. let's just go on with the with the story. T- so, yeah, so there's this story. So then he becomes a mercenary, and he starts wandering around. Yeah. Uh, uh, and he sort of he straddles that line like Tarzan and uh, Conan uh, of... Uh, between savagery and civilization right. so there's a veneer of civilization he learns all these languages and he's he's uh uh you know obviously can integrate himself into culture but there's always unchaka lurking underneath yeah she literally describes it almost like another personality yeah when the when the that chips sometimes are down takes and, over yeah. yeah when the chips are down everything gets intense uh he reverts to unchaka who's you know more animal than man and that's what helps him survive a lot of straits because yeah it, it's just like his funk his reasoning mind sort of shuts down and his animal mind takes over and mm-hmm. he just usually makes mincemeat of whoever's <laughs> attacking yeah. him or whatever but unchaka is also uh <laughs> is more scared of things as well in some ways like uh more wary like he's more uh aware of danger around him he, he is i'd say he's less fearsome and that's even a plot point uh yeah. in the scathe books uh, with the hounds but um 
yeah, it's it's definitely you know, and then that sort of you know he has inhuman reflexes, mm-hmm. and you know he's but, able to uh, in the uh, and I'm not, I can't remember if this appears in the uh, so there's two versions of some of these stories, so uh, we read different versions, I think. Right. Um. So Black Amazon of Mars. I'm not sure if it's in that one, but in the rewrite, uh, the extension, I guess. Mm which uh, that one was almost completely rewritten. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, sorry, just to be clear, they, she wrote these as three short stories around 49 and then revamped two of them into full novels e- uh, a short time later. Novellas. Novellas, yeah. Okay. Uh, and a, uh, the... Uh, so I actually read two versions of one of them, mm-hmm. Black Amazon of Mars, which became People of the Talisman. The short story version is far superior, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and uh, it's apparently pretty much agreed upon in uh in fandom circles like it's not there's no solid evidence but it's agreed upon that her husband edmund hamilton sort of ghost wrote the rewrites oh okay that's interesting uh, i didn't know that they actually did collaborate together officially um in on a uh, a crossover between uh, uh eric john stark and uh hamilton's own uh space opera series the star kings okay um, now did they did they actually collaborate or was that because I, I got the impression that came out after she died yeah it did uh uh they they submitted it to uh uh the last dangerous visions but it oh, didn't okay get so accepted. it was written long ago and then yeah. only published decades later yeah it was published oh, okay. in 2005 and is no longer in print mm. uh there were some versions for a hundred bucks and i wasn't willing to pay that much <laughs> yeah, of course um well I, I and i i from what i could understand uh hamilton's thing was set thousands and thousands of years in the future so i'm not really clear on how they were able to although i guess you could argue starks was but i never got the impression no i, I got i got the impression it was like a hundred years in the future yeah, or something. A few hundred, yeah. Well, now that's one of the interesting things about these stories is that, like I say, there's there's the three, let's let's call them three stories, even yeah. though they were revamped. Uh, they were written 49, 50, 51, I think, uh, which is, as we said, it's kind of the very, very tail end in which you could do... Um, stories set on mars and venus and deal with them as if they had civilizations and if they had an ancient but you uh, could do that now as a throwback right at the time it was just it was at the point where people were uh not willing to put up with that Mm -hmm. or just uh, at the point where people were still sort of willing to put up with that as an actual story right and not as a throwback yeah but it there's a period in there where yeah like, it wasn't far enough in the past, those kinds of stories, that right. people were willing to accept them. Yeah, that's the funny thing, where it's like, it's it's always, it's like, once you, once you, once culture, you know, is done with something, it's like, it's completely out of fashion for a while, and then you can eventually go back to it as kind of a retro thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so when she came back to the stories in the early 70s... Oh, uh, the, the first three are... Two are set on Mars, one set on Venus. Right. And they are depicted, and of course he was raised on Mercury, and it is depicted as, oh yeah, there were people living on Venus and Mars, and not like, oh, they're colonists. I mean, you could argue they're humans, and this is just set so far in the future that human civilizations have split off. And No, no, they, but that's not... I don't believe that was the intention, no. Um, you'd, have to, you'd have to stretch it really far. I, I mean, it's hard to say, because it doesn't come down firmly on anything but yes i agree like it's 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 clearly meant to be the john carter thing where there are oh yeah I think, it, I think it does mention a couple times that martians were there and then humans then earth men landed so well she, he definitely talks about um the martians like humans being there 
uh, like there were aliens, like on Mars, the uh, the what are they called? The 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 cold ones or the, the shining ones? The shining yes. ones. Um, that's were in Black be- Amazon of Mars. They're not in the re- redone version. Right. Oh, there are an alien race in that that are less interesting. Right. So, the, but but that's the thing. They're depicted as having been there before the humans. But then the human civilization is is supposed to have been thousands of years old on Mars as well. Now you could interpret it as just, oh yeah, there have been humans on Mars for thousands of years, and this is really really far in the future. Uh, it's not out of the that's that's not out of the uh league of possibility i guess probably like they use swords and stuff and they they seem less advanced than Mm -hmm. than spacefaring civilization well i think you i I think the argument would be that that they conquered they colonized mars uh and then they fell back into savagery like you know it's possible but you're right i i you're like she's clearly paying homage to edgar rice burroughs so i don't think that is the intention at the time um and then so but then the interesting thing is then of course when she comes back to the 70s because you can't do that so uh, the 70s novels are set in a planet called Scathe, which more or less fills the same uh, role as Mars, as we've seen on It's a little different than stories. her take on Mars, but it's it's similar. Yeah, it's a dying, dying planet. Yeah. 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 It's got all these various ancient civilizations. It's... Um, you know, it's warlike, it's falling into savagery. And that is actually, in some ways, she actually fleshes out some of the themes of things like Tarzan and Conan uh, and Edgar Rice Burroughs in a way that is a little more developed than those stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, she literally does look at what are the geopolitics of a world where it's dying. And it's kind of an early, you know, environmentalist parable in some ways. Yeah. Um, in fact, I've, I, as I was reading this, I did cross my mind and then i've seen other people suggest this that uh it may have been an influence on the game of thrones books uh def- yeah i i definitely saw that when i read black amazon of mars years ago um the shining ones they're they're uh ice beings like they live in cold uh they live behind a great wall of death mm-hmm. that keeps them uh, uh trapped there and uh they'll they were they ruled the earth thousands of or they ruled Mars thousands of years ago, uh, and they want to come back, but they're being held in check and right exactly um, yeah and then and then in the Scase stories, it's the idea of literally well you know the world is growing too cold for habitation. In this case, it's more of a natural phenomenon because the sun is cooling on Scathe. It's, it's yeah a, it's a red giant. They don't flat out say that, but that's obviously what's happening. It's a yeah. which is towards the end of a stellar life cycle. Uh, by the final book, literally the environment is starting to become devastated, and Stark is literally going, "Well, you guys are going to have to evacuate your planet. Basically, yeah. you're going to have to get your your acting gear." And that's that's the similar thing you get from the Game of Thrones books, where it's like, if you guys would just get your act together, you could solve this problem. But you're too busy stabbing each other in the back and holding on to what power you do have uh, to really get together. So I do feel like that may have that may have influenced. It's, it's hard to say. I know there were other books that also influenced uh, Game of Thrones, uh, mm-hmm. but that seems to have been an ongoing uh, concern. There's also the Dying Earth books, which are actually contemporaneous with the early uh, Eric John Stark novels, mm-hmm. uh, early fifties by Jack Vance, which we will probably have to cover uh, next season. Uh, that's an interesting or further on because they're they were a big thing and they were a big influence on people. Uh, but anyway, it's it's um, it's it's in many ways it's a mishmash of. Uh, as many pulp tropes as you could count. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we we've mostly focused on the science fiction aspects, but there's there's magic in these stories. There's prophecies. There's uh, there's genetically engineered bird people who can control the wind with their right. minds. Yeah, uh, and it's there's a line in one of the skate books. I think the second one where um, uh, Stark uh, thinks uh. You know, whether you call it magic or psychokinesis, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same thing. Yeah, there's always... So, there's, there's a scientific 
pseudo-scientific veneer there, but like mm-hmm. it's like a Conan, right. the barbarian setting in some ways. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, they do go out of their way to say you could always paint it as sci-fi with sort of loopy 70s type sci-fi like telekinesis. Uh, and you can then therefore see how she did have an influence on George Lucas because it's the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, oh, it's magic, but there's a, maybe there's a scientific explanation of just they're all telekinetic or whatever. Yeah. But, well, the prophecies are, I, I guess... Well, yeah. you can also argue that that's, like, temporal reasoning, which <laughs> is a thing that had come up a few times mm-hmm. in, uh, in like, if you ever read the Gene Wolfe um, Earth of the New Sun books, um, there's, quote, prophecies and there's there's uh, temporal stuff, and, but it's, it's l- specifically linked to time travel and weird mm-hmm. uh, glitches in time that send people back and stuff like that. But so again, th- I didn't get the sense that there was time travel no, involved in this. No, I, I think, well, I think... That uh, as with all of her stories here that I'm seeing, I think she's building on what other people have built, and she's going with a lot of tropes that already existed. Yeah. And that's another one that might have been there. But she, just the fact that she does stop and set aside and say, "Okay, but this could be science," like yeah. suggests to me that she's trying to walk that line. And that's the same thing Star Wars is doing, where it's mm-hmm. it's it's like people always go, "Star Wars is fantasy." It's like, well, yes, it's written in the style of fantasy, but there is a scientific explanation for everything in Star Wars. Even the Force is pseudo telekinesis basically yeah um, i mean people say star wars is uh this is an aside but people say star wars is fantasy and star trek is hard sight there are literal <laughs> gods in star trek yeah exactly apollo is a character <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly and it's it's very much and you see much more of that blurring i think uh, in by and that's one of the the lines you can draw between the immediate post world war ii where i think sci-fi was seen through the through the thirties, forties, and fifties, I think there was always a desire to again because we've talked about J, uh, John W. Campbell, uh, who did uh, Astounding Stories, and I think he was very big on hard sci-fi. There was definitely a group of people like Isaac Asimov who were big on no, it has to be hard sci-fi, and just in general, fantasy was not looked on as kindly immediately post World War Two. Like the in culture, pop culture, you don't see a lot of fantasy. When you do, it's like King Arthur or or, or fairy tales or something. You don't get um, until Tolkien sort of caught on in the in the sixties in America, you don't get a lot of fantasy, I think, um, and that's I think reflected in her stories. And as I say, she was kind of late to the party. For uh, you can see why she didn't pursue Arc John Stark as much at the time, uh, because I think that the, the the zeitgeist was moving away from that kind of story, even even with a pseudo scientific explanation. Uh, you know, the swords and sandals type stuff was not as popular at that particular mm-hmm. moment she was writing. That's the impression I get. Um, it got a renaissance in the 60s again. Anyway, so so she, you could argue that she kind of missed her moment, I think, uh, with the with the Stark stories. Uh, but it is interesting that she, like, she clearly loves that stuff. And it is interesting how she, like, um, the, the one I really liked is The Hounds of Scaith. Um, because it literally comes out of uh, Stark having been raised by, you know, semi, of uh, being part animal. Uh, allows him he's attacked by these telepathic wolves um, uh, who uh, kill by sending fear to you right so they they're not really used to genuine fights at that point mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so they send fear to him and it does debilitate him for for a little while but he fights back and nobody's ever done that to them before right yeah it's it's literally his it's it, you know basically his upbringing as his animal like 
his animalistic upbringing is what uh, allows him to like relate to them in a way that you know civilized humans can't, and so he's able to take control of them, and they become his his pack. He becomes the alpha wolf, literally, yeah. uh, and takes. No, over that him. that's not really a scientific thing, but you know. <laughs> well, again, we're going we're dealing with a lot of pseudoscience, like yeah. you say. Uh, but yeah, no, that is uh, clearly the intention. Yeah, um, that he becomes the leader of this uh, pack of Skate, which is the title of the second book. It's called The Hounds of Skate. Yeah, and they end up uh, going into space with him at the end of the third book um or two of them anyway uh most of the pack stays behind but he knows that the two leaders wouldn't be able to mm. uh wouldn't be willing to part with him so they go off into space with him so it would it would have been nice if this continued and yeah uh like he you know eric yeah. john stark traveling through space with some psychic wolves yeah yeah it's pretty cool well they they've always they throughout the entire series uh they do uh, imply that a lot of adventures for him like they talk about yeah. his backstory even even the backstory of him being raised on mercury is never seen it's it's a flashback that he you know they spend uh, you know at most she spends like two pages on it uh throughout the entire series yeah um uh, we get it there's a character named old one but other than that there's no real right and he hunted the rock lizards and yeah he had his sort of coming of age defeating a rock lizard and the big important thing is that the guy who saved him simon ashton is um the one he comes to scathe originally to save because yeah. he's gone to scathe as kind of a interstellar envoy to tell them hey yeah. by the way you guys should evacuate your planet in between the first three stories and the uh scathe stories there's like a federation sort of thing the galactic union set up which isn't even implied in the mars <laughs> ones but yeah it's not also it's not it doesn't contradict them but mm -hmm. at the same time it's it's clearly a retcon oh yeah yeah no it's it's she verily very obvious there's no even suggestion that they've gone beyond the solar system in the first uh, yeah in the first uh the first series and uh i mean his they don't mention mars or venus having life on it like they don't say it doesn't but you know, right well they uh, do say he's from uh mercury, from mercury they, they which he has she to couldn't be. really change that because that's his origin but right right I, well, this is what I mean. Like, you could retcon it to be... Now, Here, like I say, Dune had come out between the two books. Dune is supposed to be set something like 10,000 years in the future. Uh, and it was a it was all the rage in sci-fi nerd circles. And so you could retcon it to be... Well, like I was saying, you even though that wasn't her retention in the 50s, she could have retconned it to be like, oh yeah, we've been on Mars for thousands of years. Like, if she'd wanted to, she could imply that. Um, but yeah, no, there's a galactic... The, the early uh, pages of... Uh, the ginger star which is the first scathe book uh she talks about yeah as you say a galactic union there's a saul is a small part of it right it's saul saul yeah saul isn't the capital it was this it was a bunch of other planets that they 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 gracefully let saul uh, integrate <laughs> as this minor world basically um but he talks about how they have a almost coruscant-esque yeah it's a, it's a city that swallowed a planet she says right yeah. Which again, that may have been an influence on George Lucas, yeah. and they have a moon which was uh, the moon with had all the computing power, if I recall correctly, right? I can't remember. Um, uh, but yeah, no, they've got a world that's where everyone has a, and this is where he's going to take the Scathians. Oh, uh, there was also them. a uh, a bit where uh, there were uh, on Skate. There, there's a uh, uh, there's some non-human creatures, including uh, some sort of psychic fishmen, right? Um, or aquatic men. And uh, uh, Stark mentions that uh, on, uh, what's the name of the city planet? I can't remember. Uh, Pax. Pax, thank you. Uh, on Pax, there are entire districts devoted to non-human mm -hmm. life forms. So right. uh, they have like underwater areas and things like that. And it reminded me of uh, 
it wasn't a very good movie, but the uh, Valerian movie mm. had some interesting uh, things right. in the in the city with like an entire aqua area for underwater right. creatures and right. different. It, yeah, it had good concept art. I just it didn't really work as a movie, but that's <laughs> that's an aside. Well, they they yeah no that that was something that people seemed to be thinking about more in the sixties and seventies. The idea of well, if you've got this federation of different planets and aliens, uh, you know they're not all going to breathe oxygen. They're not going to have the same gravity. They're all not all going to have the same you know temperature you're gonna if you're gonna create a planet where all these aliens can coexist you're gonna have to create an environment where they can you know different environments for them in the city basically Mm -hmm. um apparently one of gene roddenberry's ideas for next generation he had a lot of weird ideas uh that didn't get used but next generation uh he originally said oh yeah they're gonna a bunch of the enterprise is going to be flooded so that there can be sentient dolphins who are going to (laughs) be part of the federation and they're gonna it's so that they can swim and they're the pilots of the federation basically which is actually really interesting but of course the budget would that, that also ties into some hippie conspiracy stuff about uh right. there was actual stuff about dolphins being a psychic <laughs> like psychic neural network on right Earth. well they, it, they made a movie about it called day of the dolphin uh so there are uh non-humans on scathe but they're most of them are uh uh genetically engineered it describes scathe as as you said a planet in decline right but it's been in decline for for thousands of years uh, there was uh, when the environment started to collapse about 2,000 years before the book takes place. There was something called the Great Wandering, where everybody sort of spread around. Right. And uh, there was lots of fighting for uh, ter- the remaining ter- livable territory, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in the Fertile Belt. Um, and some groups uh, used now lost genetic engineering technology to turn themselves into to survive in different environments. So there's right. the uh, uh, children of the CR mother mm-hmm. uh, who uh, genetically engineered themselves into sort of seal creatures, um, savage sort of seal monsters, uh, humanoid, you know, still right. human looking, but with like, you know, seal features. Which is weird because then later she introduces another aquatic race called the Susming. Who evolved naturally. Who are, uh, yeah, and they're more, they're more, um, they're more sophisticated and they're, yeah, uh, they're I, friendly. Yeah, I got a real big uh, ape sapien vibe off of them right right because they're psychic as well right right they're telepathic uh which is necessary that's but it, it it deliberate like it it separates them says that uh these ones uh, evolve naturally rather than uh right. being genetically altered which is weird because why would you genetically alter yourself to just become a a non-thinking sea-dwelling <laughs> monster basically well it also says a lot of them didn't work uh there's right. the uh, children of skate their mother uh who who work they're, they're sort of furry and tall right. but there's the uh the fallerin who wanted to be the children of the sky our father i can't remember right uh but uh they wanted to turn into birds mm-hmm. uh and they sort of did that but uh their wings weren't big enough to really s- have sustained flights so they just mm-hmm. short distance flights and they right. they call themselves the tethered because uh right they're they want to fly, but they can't really. Right. Live Except in they the can s- control the wind, so it seems to me they could use that to fly if they really yeah. wanted to. So I don't know. It's sort of yeah. The, it's it, but yeah. They, it was it was definitely they beefed it in terms of genetic engineering. Yeah. They're they're described as being monstrosities. They're basically bird people, right? Yeah, they're they're birdmen. Yeah, they ha- do they have literal beaks? I can't remember, or if they just they have wings. I think so. Yeah, 
I think he describes them as having beaks at one yeah. point too. So they're mashed up birds and humans. All the other Scathians just look basically human as far as we can tell. The, the standard Scathian, the standard yeah. Scathian is human. Uh, there's different races. Oh, that, that's something that I, I find really interesting because in a lot of science fiction stories with multiple worlds, each world is one culture, right. one biome, one... Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bracket, even though there are multiple worlds covered in in over the series... Uh, uh, Scathe, uh, Mars, and Venus uh, are... And Mercury. F- and Mercury to a lesser extent, but the vocal planets are those. But each one has its own environments, its mm-hmm. own people, its own races. Yeah. Uh, like multiples. Right. And uh, that's something that... Uh, I think it, it comes out of the, the uh, early planetary science fiction, which took place on one planet, like Barsoom. Like, you have to have different cultures on... If yeah, you're only exactly. set on one planet. But right. it's interesting that she did that with multiple planets, which right. is still rare and it's refreshing, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and again, I, I, I keep going back to Dune, but I think like Dune was a big influence on sci fi at that period, this kind of pulpy sci fi, mm-hmm. uh, because Dune also has different. Uh, you know, well, I mean, even the Mars stuff she did, like there's, yeah, yeah. there's ice areas. And in that case, yeah. as you say, it is definitely Barsoom. And Barsoom, of course, had all these different races and peoples and cultures. Yeah. And, and uh, Though uh, her Venus as well, like it's a, she only has one story on Venus and it was never expanded into a uh, longer version. But uh, it really interesting. Uh, Venus is typically a jungle planet. And it's, it's tropical and er, typically in science, early science fiction is a right. jungle planet. Uh, and it's uh, depicted here as as tropical, but there's uh, a really interesting feature: the uh, gaseous Red Sea, um, which is a sea of gas that you can sail on, but you can also swim through and breathe in. Right, it's breathable gas that is also apparently thick enough to support ships. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, again, it's more fantasy than <laughs> yeah than anything, it's, but it's a cool it's a cool concept. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, there's there's slave labor that are forced to work yeah. under the sea. And Th- that was probably the most Conan esque story because it or Robert E. Howard esque story at least because it the whole aspect of the hero is captured. He's forced to work as a slave uh, to unearth eldritch ancient knowledge from an ancient mm-hmm. civilization and then the sort of the the queen of the the decadent uh people you know royal hierarchy uh takes a liking to him and sort of seduces him uh and she but she's using him that that whole dynamic is very much like a, a robert e howard story yeah. um so that's one and of those also had dragons kept mentioning lizard dragon monsters right uh there there aren't a lot of creatures in these stories well there uh, are a few there, there are a few but there aren't uh they're not as uh, prominent as they are in St. Barsoom. Uh, I don't like, fully agree with that. There's there's the Hounds of Scathe are a huge part of the story. There's the runner, uh, There's the Runners who yeah. are basically giant predatory birds that run in front of a sandstorm, which is really cool. They hunt by running in front of a sandstorm, and as people are getting choked out by the sandstorm, these things run up and eat you, basically. Uh, yeah, uh, and there was a cool... B- the father... The Falloran, who can control the wind, mm-hmm. uh, started directing them right. to attack people. That becomes their weapon, yeah. yeah. And the uh, there's the, the rock lizards on Mercury. Yes, and- but it's, it's I don't know, uh, Barsoom seemed to have more of an ecosystem to me. Like, there's the, there's the Thoats and the Zitadars and all the... Right. Um, uh, well... She doesn't have uh, Burroughs' love of weird animals, to yeah. be true. Uh, I think there's some of that, and there's this enough to make you go... This isn't a criticism, necessarily. It's just yeah. something I noticed. No, no, for sure. Uh, and I mean, it's... 
it's it's fine because you know it's not a huge part of the story. But she did create a few memorable, you know, critter, yeah, alien critters. I think so. I, I you know that's fair enough. Um, the um, uh, just want to go back to what we were mentioning about race because. Um, uh, when we talk about, uh, as you say, he's described perpetually as having very dark skin. Um, now, so to the point where some people talk about the series as well, it's groundbreaking because it had a person of color as the protagonist. Yeah, that's what I, w- I read uh, uh, Black Amazon of Mars years ago. It's the only one of these in public domain, though the character isn't because it's not the first story he appeared in. Mm-hmm. But uh, I went into that. Uh, thinking he was uh, like reading about him being this revolutionary person of color character in a sci-fi story, mm-hmm. um, you know, non-stereotypically, you know, depicted. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he's not necessarily like. Well, this is what I wanted to talk yeah. about. Yeah. Um, no, there there is something about that because you're right, and he's described as, as you say, he has blue eyes, and well, it says light eyes. It doesn't. I don't true. think it uses the color, but. Yeah. Well, they describe it as being ice-like, I think, which yeah, may yeah. suggest blue. Um, although, you know, yes, it could be a metaphor. You're right. Well, here's so this is what we're talking about. And then, of course, it's described explicitly as his skin was burned dark by the Mercurian sun. Um, but to me, now, so there is there is a thing in pulp novels because, of course, the idea of a person of color as a black man or, a, or even just a Latino or something as the protagonist is something that, the pulps would shy away from. Yeah. You know, it's not that they didn't exist in fiction at that point, but they were, you know, they weren't the province of the pulps, which tended to have a reactionary And as we discussed on the one on Nova, I mean, even by the 70s, it was still... Right. Like, yeah, late 60s. Late yeah. 60s, yeah. But Cam- as we said, Campbell, he and Campbell, and literally the, that Deep Space Nine episode was about you can't have a black protagonist. Um, but I, do, I am somewhat of the theory that there was an attempt by writers to get around that by providing sort of an escape hatch. Uh, if you know about the Doc Savage novels, again, that's something we might cover in the future, or we probably have to. Um, Doc Savage is described literally as the man of bronze. Uh, there's nothing about him that explicitly ties him to being uh, you know, a person of color, but if you look at the um, the story, he's his, his origin is tied to a lost race of... I believe South American tribesmen, uh, somewhere in South Central America. Anyway, lost in the jungle, nobody knew they existed. Um, and uh, his father discovered them shortly, and he was born near there. Um, there's a very strong implication, and I believe one of the later comics that have been adapted made it explicit that his mother, who is never mentioned, was one of these tribespeople. Um, there's no other explanation given for why he's got this very notable bronze skin, um, and and it kind of feels like. The creator, Lester Dent, I can't, that's his pen name, I can't remember the actual creator, wanted to effectively write a guy who was from this lost Amazonian tribe, but was giving you all these sort of escape hatches so that, you know, if you were, I don't want to say if you were a racist reader, but if people who might have been uncomfortable with the idea of a person of color protagonist, they can say, oh, no, 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 it's just, yeah, if you're racist. (laughs) I mean, whatever the zeitgeist was in the 50s, because by the 50s, like, the civil rights movement was gearing up. People knew that it was a good idea to have protagonists who are people of color. As we said, Stars My Destination had, uh, you know, had a a black woman in it. Um, Obviously, Samuel R. Delaney was getting started by the early 60s. You know, like, there was enough movement towards people going... People probably would have hesitated to say, no, there can't be any people of color in my uh, my entertainment. They probably wouldn't have full-on said that, uh, well, but they would have felt that, that way. Well, there's that famous story of the EC comic uh, where uh, 
uh, I can't remember the name of the story, right. but yeah, uh, no, Judgment Day. It's yeah, called. Okay, uh, it's about uh, an astronaut who we don't see his face until the end. He's a black man. I just gave away the twist. Yeah, but he he encounters race uh, two uh, uh, sort of yellow robots fighting red robots over right. You know, just the color of their metal, and he just right. says, "This is ridiculous. Why are you doing this?" Then at the end of the story, he takes off his helmet, and he's a black man. Right. And this was fought by the editor, right, who uh, didn't want it there. No, no, no. It was uh, Bill Gaines, the editor insisted that it be there he was fighting the uh comics code authority, oh sorry or the publisher i, I believe because okay. i don't think the comics code authority existed at that point no. uh, but yes no he he definitely fought pressure from the higher well this is exactly what i'm saying because it was always guised under whenever that kind of thing came up the people who wanted to fight it who had some power they would never say well we insist on no black people they would say well we we get what you're saying but you know i don't think the public's ready for it yeah yet. that was the argument uh, it was always uh and later on i remember dc had uh some uh they didn't want to offend anybody by depicting them badly so like right. uh, yeah, yeah uh so that that's why it took so long to create a black superhero at dc because right. uh yeah well that's what i'm saying there's there's different level i mean of course there were just pure racist people as yeah. well but there were always this by the end of world war ii there was at least most people were at least trying to couch it in something mm-hmm. else so so there was a lot of sort of um you know people basically had gotten to the point where you couldn't just be openly racist but they kept finding these weird mm-hmm. workarounds so i feel like that uh, may be in the same as i said with doc savage i i think that might be in the same general um the the same general wheelhouse where she was kind of trying to have her cake and eat it too as it were mm-hmm. um I can it's hard to that. say it's hard to say for sure but there's as you say an escape hatch on you know okay maybe maybe she wanted him to be a person of color but there, there's the excuse of no, no no he just has a dark tan that's yeah. all it is you know well even then a lot of the the covers to these books had him really light-skinned and blonde and like right i because exactly. a lot of them didn't read the book well pulp color covers are notorious yeah. for not well, matching uh, black amazon <laughs> of mars the the title gives away that I, I i can't imagine lee brackett wanted that title because it gives away the twist in the story right that shit that it's a, a woman disguised as a man yeah I, and the cover yeah, has a true, as yeah. a red-haired amazon woman and tight you know boob armor um let's yeah. see uh another thing i wanted to discuss uh the uh the tone of the hero uh eric john stark is i wouldn't say he's an anti-hero but he's definitely has some uh he's a little more morally ambiguous than a john carter type uh intentionally so like john carter you could say he does a lot of bad things but that's because edgar rice burroughs thought they were good things you know right right but uh, in this case he's a little more Mm -hmm. world weary he's more he's seen some stuff Right. He's done some stuff that he's not proud of, maybe, uh, or at least hinted at. Um, yeah, I, I think the big thing with that is uh, Jofer in, I guess it's, I think it's Hounds of Scaith, uh, the little kid who they take with them. Uh, that was getting, that was uncomfortable to me, because basically they come to some tribesmen. Uh, they're trying to, they're basically trying to outrace the Wandsmen, who are the uh, the sort of authorities on uh, Scaith, who they're fighting to overthrow. Uh, they're trying to ride south and, 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 basically put paid to a possible nascent rebellion and so you know it's the stark and the heroes are trying to race south to beat them um and they come upon some tribes people who are sympathetic to the wandsmen they 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 there's sort of some tense negotiation uh, and they end up basically uh with gareth who is the uh prophetess uh who is also kind of the love interest 
pretty much, yeah. Yeah, uh, for, on this in the skate stories, um, and she basically says, "We actually no, it's pretty explicit by yeah, later that's on. right. They yeah. become lovers. Um, uh, it, she's just she's not in it that much. That's the thing. Um, but she she uh, they say, um, oh, you got to take this kid or we're all gonna die. Basically, uh, the, I've seen the future, and if you don't take this kid, and the kid does not want to go with them, and they basically kidnap this kid, mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 and and the kid hates him and tries to kill him a numerous times, uh, and in fact the 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 reason they had to take him is that he starts uh, acting all suspicious and saying, I'll just wait here for a moment. Uh, Stark, or the hounds rather, catch that he means them ill, because again, the, t- the hounds are telepathic. Uh, then they realize he- they were all about to enter a- an era of like quicksand in the desert. And that's why having the kid with them saved their lives, mm-hmm. basically. Um, but it was because he was literally going to let them all die, because he hates them again. And uh, not the- as far- unless something happened in the third book, because I didn't quite finish the I third book. I think they send him back. They s- oh, they send him back and he's fine, basically. I don't recall well, they- him coming up, coming up again. But No, yeah. he's... he's-, he's- He's left in the care of some other people who might have ransomed him back, so it might not have been great treatment, but, I mean, he's alive and well by the end. They don't do anything bad with him, but they're very callous towards this kid, like they kidnap him, basically. Yeah. And it got a little uncomfortable to that point. And yeah. I, and, and as you say, I don't, I you know, I thought she, I, I definitely think he's an intentional anti-hero, but that definitely tread the borders of, wait, are they just sort of saying ends justify the means there, you know? I don't know. I I feel like a lot of his motivation in the skate books are, is very selfish. He's trying to get Ashton back. He's trying to mm-hmm. uh, get the spaceports back up so he can leave the planet. Right. Um. And and I mean, but I but then he is motivated by trying to save Ashton, who who's he his cares father, about. though. Yeah. yeah. But uh, selfish in like a right. immediate like he doesn't really, at least at first, doesn't care about skate at all. Right. I'd say he comes around to like he you know, does. Like yeah. there are probably some points where he could have just slipped away on a spaceship and left everything, and yeah. he doesn't do that. He's not, he's not a complete uh, bastard, but right. uh, like he he's definitely like I said, morally ambiguous. Yeah, he reminded me of uh, I think I said this already, but a film noir character, right? And which fits because uh-huh. she wrote. Oh yeah, yeah, there's there's a st- and that well that's a good uh, segue because there were uh, as you say she wrote uh, uh, film noir. The third book opens with, uh, like, the second book seems to end with them triumphing, and then the the guy who they were going to use to help evacuate the planet uh, stabs them in the back and basically captures them and says, well, now I'm going to ra- loot this planet for all the stuff I need, uh, which is, as people point out, that's a very film noir type betrayal, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, uh, also, this is sort of uh, beside the point, but I, I liked the uh, detail that the uh, the guy wanted information from Stark, so he drugged him. Uh, you know, sort of truth serum, but it Stark reverted back to his right. uh, native speech, <laughs> yeah. which is, um, yeah, uh, which he didn't under, which the guy didn't right. understand, and even with uh, Ashton there to translate. It's such a simple speech that a lot of the information he wanted didn't have words for it. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was like she really does make use of the whole. No, he's a savage at heart, and like that. Like she, she comes up with some clever ways of using that throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but politically, I do want to actually mention that because this is essentially about a giant revolution on this planet, which he's leading. Um, some have said that. You can see a reactionary, str- I, and I kind of agree that there. You can see a reactionary streak in the politics of the Scathe books. Um, in particular, the Farers, who are the people roaming around, uh, who are the yeah. I think it's like a, a communist thing. Like they're hippies. Well, they're hippies. And the, yeah. Yeah, and the the idea is the uh, uh, the Lord's protector and the Wandsmen are set up or were set up during the the wandering to. Uh, 
feed the hungry and house the homeless, but they ended up uh, taking that way too far and uh, right. basically enslaving a small portion of the population to, in order to feed yeah. their children. And there, it might be a, a that That's a little for- dubious to me. Like, I mean, sure, yes, I see that. that. To me, that's less her trying to make a specific political comment and more just being inspired by the politics of the day. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the fairs, it's definitely like, as somebody pointed out, she was in Hollywood... Uh, in the late uh, 60s. And so she would have seen the Manson family murders. Mm-hmm. So she's writing right in the smack dab of the, the period where point, everyone yeah. was freaked out by hippies because of the Manson family. No, it's... It, but yeah, no, it, Hollywood was very... Like, took a, a bit of an anti-hippie turn in the 70s in some ways. Uh, I, that's a generalization. There were exceptions to that. But I, I think you could argue that was sort of the end of hippie culture because in California, where everyone cared about it the most, suddenly everyone was terrified of hippies because yeah. they, they could be the next Charles Manson. So it kind of died out. Uh in that sense, and it, you also see it in the Conan the Barbarian film uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, where the cultists are essentially hippies. Um, so there's yeah, this very- there's definitely a uh, either. Uh- uh, Charles Manson or Jim Jones. Yeah, Jim Jones. Yeah. And uh, there were a few others like that. And yeah. people were just really freaked out by that hippie. And the, the, and the fairs very much sound like hippies uh, when you read about that. They wrote, they smoke love weed and mm. they paint them, they do body paint and all that And stuff. they free love and all that. Yeah. yeah. So and they're they very just leave silly. their children once they have them to right. be raised by somebody else. So right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very clearly. Uh, the, the whole idea of the Lord Protectors being communists, it, that's less clear to me. I mean, sure, you can argue just as well that it's you know berating a, like liberalistic society yeah right? like it's the same I, i'm just saying that that could be a, a i mean either way it's a reactionary yeah. thing it's it's kind of a oh you know it's it's bad that you know when the, the systems people have set up to protect them go bad you know the, that's the, the, the lord's thing. protector i did like that they genuinely believe in their cause like they're not mm-hmm. enriching themselves necessarily right that it, it when he uh uh invades their temple in the first book he's uh, saddened to see that they're just a bunch of old monks sitting around, right? You know, like not in luxury, and like he, he would, it would have been easier for him. He says mm-hmm. if they were, if they were living in luxury, just to slaughter them all. But right, right. He's not able to do that because they yeah. seem to actually. Care. And then, and then the irony is that it does become it's it's hard not to resonate with like climate change scenarios because there's like they're just they they would rather hang on to power than deal with the imminent threat of literal climate change yeah so uh, colonialism is a a thing because it's right this is all about uh the skate books are all about joining the galactic union and uh right emigrating to other planets but on the other hand their world is literally dying right exactly and it does die at the end pretty much and it is and and that's that's the thing it's on the one hand it's you know stark is representational of the noble savage and literally the first thing that happens is that humans come down and destroy his society that he was adapted into his 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 tribe and you know human it's a very you know negative view of imperialism and colonialism but then the scathe books hinge on we're trying to get you guys to join you know it's to, to come in and invade your planet and actually get you to evacuate your planet um and it's a very positive view of yeah you know a colonial but mindset as it were you can say you know the planet is literally sure dying. absolutely they well but you know you don't get a very strong sense that the world the galactic union is like really invested in saving scathe it's like if they were really invested they'd send a fleet of ships like 
tomorrow yeah. and there's nothing the Lord Protectors could have done about it. Yeah. It's more a case of, and it is it is almost like a Star Trek Prime Directive thing where it's like, no, you guys have to agree that you want to be evacuated yeah. before we're going to do it. It's not quite Prime Directive because they reveal themselves to a pre-space no, no. travel civilization, but yeah. But yeah, it's very much like we have to get, his, his struggle throughout the books is we have to get Scathe united and agreeing, let's get off this planet. <laughs> like that is, that is the goal and they're not really, and when they do get someone who's willing to move, he's kind of an outsider. It's a, uh, what's his name Penkwar Che uh Penkar Che I can't remember I can't remember Yeah he's a, he's Penkar Chi Penkar Chi yeah he's an he's an Antarian yeah um, he's an Antarian and he's he, he's the one who stabs them in the back yeah. so there's a suggestion he's not he's not working for the uh, the Galactic Union at all he's just a, he's a freelancer a smuggler, yeah. yeah exactly um so uh, but so yeah, you know. The, so in that sense, I don't think she was making a very pointed political comment. But it is interesting that it's all the, as again, it's the what's what's in the zeitgeist goes into the books essentially. Mm-hmm. So and uh, the books also, uh, at least the early ones, uh, the Mars ones, reminded me of Clark Ashton Smith's uh, Mars stories, which I've mentioned before, which have a colonized Mars. Uh, with humans living on it, but there's also ancient civilizations there, and the humans keep uncovering sort of ancient eldritch horrors hidden in the dark. So right. sort of reminded me of that. It may not be a direct reference, but it, it's definitely of that uh, yeah. uh, tradition. I think she was, she was... There was a bunch of tropes that were established by people like Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Fritz Lieber, and all these other pulp sword and sorcery people, and Edgar Rice Burroughs before mm-hmm. that. Uh, and I think she was draw at, at that point, it had become a bit of a stew of tropes that yeah. she was drawing from. And, and I, But I, I like how she does it, because uh, uh, she sort of assumes that you already know what this sort of thing is, and right. she doesn't explain it in mm-hmm. detail, because... You know what this is. Like, yeah, exactly. It's it's you know the kind of thing I'm doing here. Yeah. Which at the which at the same time is a bit of a um like it's it's I mean that's traditional for pulps. You know, a lot of the pulp writers were like that. They just yeah. did okay, people have done this kind of story before, now I'm gonna do one of my own, yeah. right? And maybe they can put in some interesting riffs, but it's not you're not expected to be this brilliantly innovative uh writer. But but I, I, I like that because it frees it up to focus more on character stuff and politics yeah. and Oh yeah, yeah. And these are even the the old fifties ones have a uh, a characterization. That's probably the thing that sticks out the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more nuanced characterization in these yeah. uh than you're likely to get in um barsoom yeah barsoom or or robert even robert e howard who does care more about characters um anyway um i think we're uh cutting on time but i did want to just finally mention that it's it is very interesting that these are written by a woman um and i'm not sure i would have been able to tell if you if i hadn't known yeah that. um yeah that, that's true i mean uh stark uh is i mean they're they're violent stories yeah uh gosh. stark kills a lot of people mm-hmm. uh there i mean there's even a fridging gareth it's, gets killed right uh, well she doesn't she sacrifice she herself? sacrifices it's herself but complex. it's it's yeah. yeah it's a little more complex but it's still uh mm-hmm. um a and, trope and it's and it's got a certain level of male gaziness even yeah uh, like the women are are very you know and she makes a big thing about how other than black amazon or mars where the point is that it's a woman fighting mm-hmm. uh sh- you know she generally assumes gender roles even in the later skate stories it's uh, like yeah you're not gonna some have of the societies have women warriors in skate it mentions them in passing. The only time I remember him saying that is when he's literally lying to them about the idea that. Oh no, no! The it's mentioned a women. few times that the women in some cities oh, okay. take up arms. Okay, but all right. We don't see it, but it's mentioned. Generally speaking, I think it's written from a perspective of you know, oh, there, you know, of course the men were fighting and the women and children were being kept under. Generally, track. It's yeah. that kind of logic. And, and the, the uh, uh, 
and women fighting is is the exception that yeah right exactly and there's no and i mean but it is there fair enough and i'm not saying you know she's a product of you know lee brackett she's a product of the culture she was writing in uh you know you're not going to say i'm not going to expect her to upend that specifically and even when it comes to you know it's not anti-feminist to say a lot of societies they wouldn't let the women fight Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's just there's no indicate you you keep expecting other than maybe some of the female characters are a little more interesting than Mm -hmm. you might expect but honestly if you've ever read the robert e hard conan stories i know you haven't uh right you haven't actually read them uh conan no conan yeah um he actually was quite good with female characters like they're they're actually you tend to assume conan was this big brutish uh, manly man guy and the women were all just objects and he actually had a number of very well fleshed out female characters. Oh yeah, in the I mean, I, I know he has a bunch of famous female characters, yeah, and Red Sonia eventually like was a right like a 16th century or mm-hmm. something like that. But, but but in the Conan stories as well, he had yeah. a few characters. So it's it's not like I wouldn't say there was a huge gap between Robert E. Howard and Lee Brackett. Like they're writing on the same level more or less. Uh, so it's hard I, to point to her and say, well, this brought a women's uh, sensibility. And it, it, I, don't I, I feel definitely like see this anything. as more. Uh, uh, it's. I think it's on the level of the cult stories. Uh, from what I've seen of Conan, they're a little less nuanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it, it definitely is because these these stories have themes and like there's, yeah yeah. Uh, well, the Conan stories don't sure. necessarily right. But specifically, just the fact, like, yeah. There's nothing. Maybe, uh, yeah, hey, we'd love to hear from you if you feel otherwise. But uh, if you know anyone, like, I, there's nothing. Obviously, us being a couple of dudes, uh, we're not uh, necessarily going to say, oh yeah, that's uh, that's got a female attitude towards it. But uh, it's and hard I think to see saying, you know, like you know. expecting like women to, you know, yeah, yeah, right, like exactly. They, uh, they're human beings. Yeah, they're, of course. They're as nuanced as anybody else. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to... Yeah, just because it is written by a woman, you don't expect... But you do sometimes see it come out a little more in that there's more sympathy to the female characters. That kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Frankenstein has, has right. themes about... Uh, uh, well, Frankenstein is a feminist and, novel. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. That, that's exactly... Even though it's about guys, yeah, like the male characters that's what are I foregrounded. Mean, yeah. yeah, But yeah, that's exactly... It has female concerns. Whereas this, I'd say they just followed off of what was already there mm-hmm. in terms of the pulps, which... But did it well. I like these stories and, a lot. Yeah, they're well done. Um, she's a very good writer. She has good prose. She's a very yeah, strong prose yeah. writer. Um, so and that the stories was big, flow. Yeah. And as I say, the characterization is good. Like, it's solid. It's not just... Uh, you know, guys, I got to get from A to B and I got to fight a guy. And Like, it's there's a little more interiority to the characters. Yeah, and basically. they have to make decisions and hard decisions sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I say, there are interesting riffs on the themes raised by things like Tarzan and Conan and even John Carter, which the original authors didn't delve into as much. She maybe pushes it a little mm-hmm. further in some interesting ways. Okay, so uh, I think that's I think it's time to wrap up. The ginger stars sinking low and the hounds of Scaether bang. So it's probably time to say goodbye. So from Philip Rice, the Lord Protector and Head Wandsman, and Adam Prosser, the Corn King, uh, who we didn't mention in this episode, but he's a thing in the book, uh, <laughs> we bid you adieu. Special thanks to our producer and engineer, Alex Ross, keeper of the Ancient Talisman of Ban Kruach, and Jack Furick, the greatest of the rock lizards. Uh, see you in the next Transit of Mercury.